0: Good morning, Harvest Muskoka, Harvest Perry Sound. It's um, an honor to be with you again. Uh, We'll wrap up uh, the the second of of two parts of Matthew 18. Um, So if you have a Bible, turn into Matthew 18. Last week we covered really pretty much verses 1 through 20. Uh, And and I'll I'll give a bit of context back from there just in case you missed it. But it is online. You can catch that. But we're going to pick up with where Jesus takes us in verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Um, and, and one of our ushers will bring you a Bible. If you, if you don't own a Bible, take that home, that's our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's word so that you can get into his word. So a couple of things um, about Matthew 18 that, that we talked about last week is the, 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 this two-part series is a redemptive community. The call to pursue and the call to forgive. So we, we tackled those spring-loaded verses of Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, where it talks about, in essence, church discipline. Um, if a brother sinned against you, you pursue him. If they listen, you have won a brother. And if he doesn't listen, then take two or three more. We talked about those verses. But to understand the heart of God for the community of faith, we went to verse 1 so that we could really try to understand the heart of God. And so a couple things were highlighted. Right out of the gate, Jesus talks about, the, they're arguing about the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, uh, the kingdom of God is like a child. He draws a, a child into the midst of them, and he begins to speak to his disciples that, that to, to be a Christ follower, you have to be childlike. And what would what it, what it mean to be childlike? If this was a room full of children, it would be pretty childish. There'd be a lot of ridiculousness going on, a lot of stuff that kids do, so it's not something that we express as much as it is a posture of the heart to be childlike, is to be humble. And then Jesus gave three threats He gave the threat of others, uh, the threat of the temptations of the world, and then a third threat, which is the threat of self, which, which, which is what I would say is the biggest threat by far. He gives two verses to that threat, but the threat of others is those who would preach a gospel different than the gospel of Christ and Christ crucified, the good news of the gospel. If you'd preach a different gospel and lead those little ones astray, woe to you. And it talks about a great millstone being fastened on the necks of those who would preach a false gospel. The second threat was a, the threat of the temptations of the world, which the world is full of temptation. And our, our hearts are prone to wander because sin entered the world in Genesis 3. And everything in me wants to sin. Everything about me has been fractured and wants to pursue the flesh and feed the grad and gratify the nature of the flesh. And then the third temptation is the temptation of self. Um, and that that we're easily swayed by others, we're easily swayed by the temptations of the world, and and our very hearts need to be redeemed. And then we got to hear Jesus' heart for the lost, the wandering sheep, that the, the heart of the Father is to pursue the sheep that wanders. We saw that in verses 10 through 14. And then with that in mind, The heart of the Father is to pursue those who wander. If you're a Christ follower, everyone in this room has wandered at one point or another. And by the goodness and the grace of God, he has come after the wandering sheep. And with that compassion, with that childlike, humble pursuit, we pursue our brother or sister who's in sin whether that's a sin directly against me or a sin in general, it doesn't matter that the heart of the father pursues the wayward. We too as the covenant community, the community of faith pursue those. That gets us to where we need to be in verse 21. So if you are there, turn with me. It says, verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So I, I gotta give, let's stop real quick. I'm gonna give Peter some credit. Peter kind of, like, you'll hear him kind of get knocked a bit in sermons, rightfully so, because he just says and does a lot of dumb stuff throughout scripture, but he's also the one who's bold enough to ask the question that everybody's thinking. But for here, I wanna give Peter credit because here's what he's done. He sees the need to forgive based off everything that Jesus has said up to this point. So kudos to that guy, like he gets it. And in fact, he's gonna go beyond what even the rabbinic, the rabbi culture would say that you have to forgive. So he says, he came up, he said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? So not only does Peter see the need to forgive, he sees the need to forgive multiple times. Peter's two for two at this point. Like he's doing well with his question, but at the same time, he sees a limit. He sees a governor to the need to forgive up to so many points. The rabbinic view, the rabbi culture of that day would have said you only have to forgive three times. After the third time, you cut them off. You, You no longer have to forgive that person. Peter takes the three and doubles it and adds one. Like, I'm sure Peter feels pretty good about himself. He's like, where's Christ gonna go with this? I'm gonna double it and add one seven times. And Jesus says, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, so what Jesus does here is beautiful. Jesus draws in Luke chapter 17, verses three through four, something else that he says um, in in another gospel, and then he's also gonna draw in Genesis four. Genesis four is, last week I quickly referenced Cain and Abel, and Cain kills Abel, his brother, um, and then God pursues Cain. Again, God already knows that Cain has killed his brother, but God pursues Cain and asks Cain, where's your brother? And you know the, you know the phrase, because we use this. I'm, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. In fact, you killed him, because the, the ground screams out because of his blood. And then it shows in Genesis 4, the consequences of Cain's sin. He is banished from the land which, where God had him. And Cain's response is this. He says, I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth And whoever finds me will kill me. So if you read Genesis 4, it kind of seems like Cain's complaining. He's not complaining. He's utterly broken and in full agreement with what God is doing and doling out on him. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Later in chapter 4, Lamech, who's a relative, a descendant of Cain, he says this. Lamech Lamech said this. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. So the context of what's going on in Genesis four is Lamech. He is in self-defense, fighting with someone who he ends up kill, killing, who's trying to take his life. And this is his response. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77 is, is fold. So Jesus draws this from Genesis and brings it into his response to Peter, who says seven times. But then he also draws from Luke 17, three through four, who says this, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Sound familiar from last week? If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So Jesus draws in two things so that we can understand what he's about to say and what he's trying to say in light of forgiving and the process of forgiving. Vengeance is the Lord. That's Genesis 4. That there's this insatiable, don't leave me alone up here. There's this insatiable desire in us for justice when we feel wronged. Cain himself says, for what I've done, the first one to kill me The first one I see, kill me. And God says, no, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. The second thing that Jesus draws in is that forgiveness is a constant, it's a heart posture. So think of what it means to be childlike from last week. Childlikeness isn't acting like a kid because let's be honest, that's immature and sometimes ridiculous. I've got four of them. It's a posture of the heart as well. It's a heart that's humble, that's utterly Christ-dependent, that looks for help outside itself, met perfectly in Christ. And to, to be a follower of Christ in the kingdom of heaven is to be childlike, which means need for salvation outside of self, perfectly found in Christ. So forgiveness is entrusting justice to the Lord and posturing our heart in a place of constant forgiveness. So Jesus, he could shut this whole teaching down right now what he's given us with these two verses and the context of verses one all the way through 20 is enough for us to just like, okay, this is what he says. But Jesus goes on and he gives us a parable. He gives us a very helpful parable to see what it means to walk in forgiveness, what it means to not walk in forgiveness, and what that means in light of our hearts before a holy God. Pick it up in verse 23. Therefore, and out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him his debts. So here's what's going on. This, this master, he's a king, he's a, he's a lord, he's, he's a wealthy dude, he goes to his accountants and he says, hey, I wanna settle my accounts. So the accountants, so to speak, they go and they begin to look into any accounts that need to be settled with the king. In other words, um, they're, gonna, they're, gonna, they're gonna reconcile. They're gonna reconcile financially. One of them owed the master 10,000 talents. This is no small amount. Um, a, um, a talent would have been the heaviest use, like when, when they would weigh talents, A talents would have been the heaviest metric, so to speak. It would be been, been the heaviest differ, differentiation in, in measuring to, to gain an understanding of how much something costs or how much something is worth. This would have been millions of dollars. He owes 10,000 talents, millions of dollars, and depending on the type of metal, so if it's copper, silver, or gold, it could be maybe billions of dollars. That in other words, what is being said here is that the debt that this man owes is insurmountable. It's insurmountable. How he got into, into this debt, it, we don't know. It's, in fact, that's not even the point. It's, it's an absurd amount of debt that in no way could he have gotten out from underneath. But then you see his response. The response in light of the justice that the master brings is he can't pay the debt. And so he is thrown into, he, he's sold, his wife is sold, his children are sold, and all his possessions are sold. And, and just because those things are sold doesn't mean that the debt is, is covered, that the debt is paid for. In fact, it doesn't even come close to paying the debt occurred, that, that the consequences for the debt that he is in and unable to pay it is, is far beyond what he could have even imagined. And then you see this plea on his part. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, I mean, this is no half-hearted plea. He is pleading his guts out, like no shame lost. I'm sure he's on the ground. I'm sure he's as low as he can get. This is no half-hearted plea. So he pleads, he implores. And the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will repay you. I will pay you everything. So th- this is where there's a, bit of a, there's a bit of a tension that's created in the text. We won't know the tension fully until we get to the second servant, which is later in the parable. But he's, he's, it's a very emotional plea. Um, and I, I would say it's more emotional than actually broken. He sees that his skin is on the line, his neck is on the line. So he's bringing it all out full of emotion but not necessarily brokenness. And then we see this unbelievable response from the the master, and it takes precedence in this whole parable. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So here's what it means to release him of the debt. The master incurred the debt. He took the loss. So it's not like he's not gonna feel that financially. He's gonna feel that financially. He incurs the loss and lets this servant go free, free of charge, clean and clear. He's out from underneath the penalty of the debt. We see this verse takes center stage in the parable. Unbelievable grace. You've heard the song, Amazing Grace. That's it right there. Amazing grace. There's nothing that this man can do to come out from underneath the insurmountable debt. There is nothing he brings to the table that's going to quench the debt. Here, sell my wife, sell my kids, sell my possessions. Do it, and he still falls well short. None of those things are factored in. It's by the amazing grace of the the king, of the master, that he removes the debt from this man. So you see this beautiful gospel thread that's being woven into the story right away. The dead occurred represents the cost for sin. The master is God, the father. Our sin before a holy God is worse than we could ever comprehend. This is what's seen in verse 24. That that I think we have this terrible tendencies as Christ followers to kind of compartmentalize sins. David talks about this in Psalm 19 and I'm going to paraphrase it, but I love Psalm 19 verses 12 through 15. It informs my prayer life because what David does in those verses is he says, basically keep your servant from these deep bends, these dark pits within me that would have me doing such depravity that I never thought capable. Those are the no brainers, right? Those are the sins we're like, yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. That's crazy stuff. That's dark and wicked. He's saying, David says, keep me from those sins, but here's David's beauty. Man after God's own heart, but also keep your servant from those permissive sins. You know what I do with permissive sins? Eh, it's not that big a deal. Yeah, it is. Sin before a holy God, it requires death every time. So this mounts this, this servant's sin, this debt, it is massive, that the sin that we bring to the table, listen to me, because if you're not a follower of Christ, let the weight of this set on you. No one is sinless. Romans would say, for the wages of sin is what? Death. That death is this insurmountable debt because I can't get out from underneath it. There's nothing that I can do to get out from underneath it. It's marked on me. Dead man walking. Death. I'm utterly determined by it. Second thing, second gospel thread, that the penalty of sin is so great he would not be able to get out from underneath it. And the consequences here, listen, the consequences are further reaching than we could ever comprehend. Isn't that just the case? Remember when, he, when the master says, well, since you can't pay it, I'm throwing you, I'm throwing your wife, I'm throwing your kids, I'm throwing you all into, um, I'm selling you, I'm getting rid of you, and I'm selling everything you own. That, remember the story I told last week about Stephen? Right at the end of the sermon, I talked about this guy, Stephen, and brothers had pleaded with Stephen. He was beginning to choose sin. One brother went and called him towards the light and said, hey, brother, well, let's walk with you. He said, forget you, I'm gonna pursue this. Who are you to tell me what to do? He continues on in his sin. Two or three brothers go and pursue Stephen and say, no, don't do this, Stephen. We'll we'll walk with you, you're safe, let's pursue Christ. Together, Stephen, even more hardened. And then he sets before the elders and the pastors and we plead with them again, don't do this, Stephen. Don't embrace the sin, let's go to Christ together. And Stephen, as seared conscience as you could be, says, I guess I could just have to hit rock bottom. Stephen then was handed over to darkness. And there's something that happens in the spiritual realm. We alluded to it last week in Matthew 15. When somebody's handed over, God hands them over so that the world can judge them and sift them. Free reign. The choices Stephen made in those eight months prior, um, after that were horrific. And all Stephen wanted was this one little pursuit here. And this giving into this one little pursuit gave way to unexplainable, horrific darkness and sin and carnage. Sin will take you further than you could ever imagine. That that the sins that, that I walk in potentially affect my kids and my wife that the sins I walk in potentially affect you as members of the congregation because I'm a pastor here. Like, there, there's, there's not a non-ripple when sin happens. When you sin, there's ripples that affect multiple, multiple, multiple peoples, and when you give in to that sin and give yourself over to that sin, the ripples are tremendous. They're brutal. They will draw in your whole family and ravage them. Right? You've seen this maybe in your own life. You've seen this in the lives of others, loved ones that you know who have made terrible decisions and in so doing drawn lots of brokenness into their whole family unit. Let's see the servant's response to this amazing grace. Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. What a graceless response. What a horrific response from someone who was just forgiven an impossible debt that could not be covered by his own. And he responds this way. And here's what's scary about this. It's nearly as if the way Jesus is telling this parable, that the moment he was forgiven the debt, it's like he already premeditatedly had in mind to seek out this fellow servant. And we're not talking about somebody who's above. This is a fellow servant. Like, he's not his boss. Like, he's not his manager. He didn't report to him on the org chart. They are fellow servants. He premeditatively seeks out this guy who owes him 100 days wages. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a lot of money to me. And it doesn't matter how much money you make or how little you make, that's a lot of money in whatever context you're a part of. So if you're a millionaire, 100 days wages is a lot of money. If you're impoverished, 100 days wages is a lot of money in that circle. It's not insubstantial, but listen, it's doable. If we can negotiate this, we can get this chipped away maybe over the eight, eight or nine months. Like there is room for grace and compassion in this debt. He skips right past it. And it's nearly as if he draws this fellow servant into the penalty that he deserved. And in this this second servant's response is much different than, than his response. The first servant's response was, I'll repay everything. No, you're not, liar. You couldn't repay everything. That's an emotional plea that has nothing behind it. You're writing a check you can't cash. The second servant, his response is much different. Have patience with me. I'll pay you. Like when you compare their two responses, the second servant's nearly saying, it's as if he's saying like, man, I got got some cash on me. Take what I got. Just be patient. Let, Let me figure this out with you. Like it's much more level-headed. It's a broken response. It understands the the, the debt. It's not trying to skirt out from underneath it, but it's, it's, it's willing to do whatever it can do right in that place, and he skips right past it. He skips right past it, and his graceless response is seen. He seeks the fellow servant out. It's not an insignificant debt, but there's no redemption and no compassion in the penalty. He throws him into jail. And this isn't like house arrest guys where he could go and work while he's under house arrest or something with his little ankle thing on. They didn't have those back then. It's not house arrest. Him being in prison means he can't further pay off the debt. Like it's like he seals his fate over a hundred days wages. It's what he deserved. That's what he deserved from the master. And he throws this second servant for far less a penalty into a horrific situation that he wouldn't have been out, able to get out from underneath. He goes out of his way to deliver justice. He went off, he aggressively throws him in prison. And it's, it's, it's if as it his punishment that was meant for him is played out on the second servant. His will is set against compassion, mercy, and grace. Listen, the flow of this, the way that he seeks him out, that's the first thing. He then goes and seizes him and chokes him. That's the second thing. And then he skips right over his plea and throws him right into jail. This is a premeditated, sadistic response from the one who was just forgiven an insurmountable debt. It's scary. The punishment does not fit the crime. Verse 30, 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So it's, it's unknown, based off how Jesus is telling this parable, if these fellow servants knew that the first servant had been forgiven his debt. There's no way to know that, but that's not the point. Either way, whether they knew he'd been forgiven much or not, what he's doing to inflict this judgment on the second servant for the 100 days wage debt is so deplorable that these fellow servants go and tell the master. And then you see verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt you... You pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's not a question. It's more a statement. Like I do this, I do this with my kids sometimes. Like I'm disciplining, disciplining them on something and I'll use a question to make a statement because I'm not wanting an answer back. Jesus is famous for this. He throws this statement out in the form of a question. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. So I want to stop right there in jailers. That word jailers literally means torturers. So again, this is a significant consequence for this man's graceless response to the second servant. And when you, take, when you take what he says earlier there, when he says, you wicked servant and jailers, the picture there is very similar to verse six in chapter 18, where it talks about the millstone around the neck, woe to those who would preach a different gospel, it's the same type of damnation. He's drawing in those who would posture their heart in unforgiveness, in other words, forgiveness as a lifestyle. If, if, if your life is defined by a long list of resentments, listen up, please. If if you've struggled with unforgiveness, but the Lord's drawn you into a place of forgiveness and you've gone back and forth on those different places, this is not talking about that. This is talking about the heart postured in unforgiveness. That the same who would preach a false gospel and lead the little ones away from Jesus, this is the same. You've been given grace and you wouldn't extend it. If that's the posture of your heart and life, there's danger. And he, he speaks on that here next. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. We've already established it's an insurmountable amount to pay. He's not getting out from underneath it. This is his damnation. He's imprisoned. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So I'm gonna use an example to kind of explain what Jesus is doing in this parable. Um, so, So think of a courtroom. If you've ever been in a courtroom, like just try to, try to have a memory of that courtroom. I don't like courtrooms. I don't care if it's a speeding ticket or jury duty. I've sat with many a counselees over the years in court to support them as they have to face the courts for decisions they've made in the community. I've never been in a scenario where I liked setting in court because the weight of the law is heavy. Several years ago, it was probably seven or eight years ago, a good friend of mine, um, he's dear friends with me to this day. He made some terrible decisions. He wasn't a believer when he did this. His decisions cost him his marriage. And um, while him and his ex-wife were separated, he came to faith. It was a radical conversion in jail. And then then it wasn't just a flash in the pan emotional thing, like the Lord saved this guy. Um, But he eventually, had to go to court to set before a judge and through a trial to deal with the sins that he had committed that resulted in his, um, in his um, jail time. And so we were sitting in there, we'd been in court for three days, um, him and his wife had reconciled and remarried at this point, really amazing story, but that's not the point of the story. He's sitting there before the judge, they've already reconciled, really cool story, but then the judge comes back with a verdict, and guess what? Hits the gavel, guilty. It's like all the air got sucked out of the room. So here's the picture that Christ is setting up. Put yourself in that courtroom. You're before that judge. There's no trial. You're guilty. I'm guilty. There's a jury over there. They're looking at you, kind of seething, skeething towards you. There's a prosecution that are just hurling insults, And hurling radical things about your character and your sin nature, and you're before a holy judge, a righteous judge. His name is God. Jesus comes into the courtroom. He pardons us from the courtroom. He absorbs the debt for us, and we're pardoned. Unforgiveness is dragging someone into the courtroom, seeking justice towards them, the very courtroom that you were pardoned from. That's the point Jesus is making. You were in the courtroom, you were pardoned. Why would you go back in? There's no reason to. You don't want to go back into that courtroom because we do not have the capacity for righteous justice like God does. We do not have the capacity to bear the weight of our sins. I can't atone for my sins. I can't even pay my 100 days debt. You see the picture? This is the picture that Jesus is saying. So the implications of unforgiveness, can I I just tell you in counseling, it is one of, if not the most consistent thing that I see as far as heart issues that I deal with with people. People who have a laundry list of resentments in their life. People who have a long list of people that they have not forgiven, don't wanna forgive, and don't wanna have anything to do with. This is serious stuff. So I wanna walk us through several points from, the, from this parable that God has given us through Christ's parable that help us daily understand what forgiveness is, how to walk in it, and how to, how to grow in the gospel in these areas. First point, forgiveness eliminates a debt. We've talked about that. It's Matthew 18, verse 27. The king absorbs the debt and allows for the first servant to be freed of that debt, but somebody has to absorb it. There's two parts to forgiveness. There's the vertical. That's judicial. So think of the courtroom. I'm before the judge and Jesus pardons me from the courtroom. That's the judicial forgiveness that I'm given through Christ. Okay? The second part is horizontal forgiveness. So as Christ followers, we're called to be in and press into one another. We talked about that last week. But there are those times where we can't walk in horizontal forgiveness because the other person hasn't repented of their sin. It takes two to reconcile. What we're seeing that Jesus is building here is bookended on the front end and on the back end that we just read. The front end is the the process of forgiveness. It's the 70 times seven. That forgiveness is an event and forgiveness is a process. That vertically I've been forgiven, which when an offense happens against me, the first response of the Christ follower isn't justice here. It's you give the offense to the Lord. And can I just tell you that when you give the offense to the Lord vertically, there's a lot of times when God has us overlook the offense horizontally. Love covers a multitude of sin. We talked about this last week. But there are those times where the, the the judicial forgiveness, we offer it to the Lord, and then there's the need for reconciliation between two people, but it takes two to reconcile. Ultimately, Christ's death pays our debt. We have judicial forgiveness. Amen. Do you know what that means? The atoning work of Christ on the cross covers all of your past sins. That that's awesome, right? I mean, I know there's a room full of people like this. There's some deplorable acts that have happened from our past, and all of them are covered by the blood of Jesus. It covers your sins today, like the ones that you did right before you walked into the room or on your way to church of all places, and your kids are driving you crazy, and your rage takes over. That doesn't happen to anyone, does it? And then all of your future sins that you haven't even committed The atoning work of Christ covers them all. Isn't that amazing? Holistic gospel. Doesn't fall short. Did you know that the atoning work of Christ also covers past sins committed against you? You hear that? Do you know that people can sin against you and it changed the trajectory of your life, but God in his mercy through Christ is actually sovereign over that, so he's not surprised by it? That somebody who's abused is a child. They're not left to that place of broken abuse. Christ redeems and heals. They're not a product of their past sin. Christ redeems. And even future sins committed against you, the atoning work of Christ covers that nothing you do against me or sins against me determine who I am. You know who determines me? Jesus Christ. There's no charge that you can bring against me. There is no charge I can bring against you. You are covered by the blood of the lamb. That's how he sees you. Where's there the need for justice then? Like if, if Christ has absorbed the wrath of God so that I could have pardon, why would I ever drag someone back into the courtroom? Nothing that they've done to me even sticks to me because of the blood of the lamb. Ken Sandy, last week we talked about he has seven A's of confession. We talked about the need to to understand your own sin. And Matthew talks about the log in your own eye. As you confront a brother, be aware that there's sin in your own life. We went through the seven A's of confession. Something else that Ken Sandy has in his book, The Peacemaker, he has the four promises of forgiveness. I want to walk through these real quick. It says this I will not dwell on the incident, obsessing like a video on repeat. So, so, um, You ever been in a situation where some hurt happens, you move beyond it, at least you think you do, and then a family reunion happens and you realize you're gonna see that person again, and all these memories come back from the hurt, and then you find the next six days is a wash because you've just replayed everything in your mind like a video on repeat. Biblical forgiveness promises not to dwell and obsess. Number two, I will not bring up the offense and use it against you. The only purpose for those trying to walk in biblical forgiveness, of bringing up an offense is for the purposes of redemptive reconciliation. So if me and a brother have a fallout and God's dealing with our hearts vertically and we come together horizontally to work through the turmoil and we draw up those events from the past, the only purpose is to have peace and, and forgiveness between the two. But, but biblical forgiveness means I will never bring up the offense against you again. And use it against you. Third, I will not talk to others about this incident. This is a problem, guys. Because what happens, passive Christianity, instead of going to a brother or sister that's in sin and pursuing them, talking it out through the grace of Christ and coming to a place of peace and healing and restoration together, instead of having the bold conversation, we fearfully check out and talk behind people's backs. It's called gossip. So we malign. And and you know what we do. I, I mean, I've done this. I've gone and and built a case about somebody to other people to try to draw people into my side. And you know, every time I do that, you know what I'm doing? I'm presenting a best case version of my side of the story and really just adding some nasty adjectives to their side so I really win people over. How, How cowardice is that? We all do this. And biblical forgiveness does not gossip or malign people. And last, I will not allow the incident to stand between or hinder the relationship. Note what I said already, it takes two to reconcile. You cannot forgive someone horizontally who hasn't hasn't asked for it vertically. In other words, if somebody sins against me and vertically I offer that to the Lord, but they never come to a place of brokenness and repentance, we can't have reconciliation horizontally. Let me read this to you, because this is important. Love the habitual sinner wisely. The brother or sister who chooses to go on sinning or be a wicked person, love the habitual sinner wisely. Forgiveness isn't making it easy for others to sin against you. Nowhere in scripture will you find God in his word, charge us to make it easy for people to sin against us. We're not doormats, okay? Romans 12, 17 through 19, listen to this, says this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful, do not... Do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave but leave room for God's wrath. You know what that means? That as a Christ follower, I'm called to put my heart before the Lord, put the offense against me before the Lord, and if this person goes on in continuing in sin and wickedness and we can't reconcile horizontally, I can leave them to the Lord. That there are relationships that cannot be reconciled because the offender continues to walk in darkness and brokenness. And as my heart's positioned vertically, I begin to intercede and plead for them that God would save them or bring them to repentance for the sake of their soul. Do you see that? So if somebody has been abused by their father growing up and their father's never changed and remained a darkened hearted individual, I would never counsel someone to just gladly come back into their life and act like nothing's happened. Forgive them, but you may not be able to reconcile because of the wickedness they continue to walk in. Second thing, forgiveness is an event and a process. We talked about this already a little bit, but one thing I want to highlight here is what happens when you remember pain? You ever been driving or maybe, maybe doing some stuff around the house and you have some music playing and you hear a song that takes you back to a really hurtful time? You ever had that happen? What happens when you remember pain? Does that mean you haven't forgiven them? Does that mean there's an issue in your heart? Maybe, maybe. But what that means is it's an opportunity that when that remembered pain comes back, because I have judicial forgiveness, vertical forgiveness through Christ with God, I bring that hurt each and every time I remember it back to the Lord. The offense is yours, God. I give it to you, God. This is yours, Christ. And over time, the gospel washes over each and every time we give that back to the Lord. And the hurt from that pain remembered is less and less, and less, and less. Sometimes this just takes time, brothers and sisters. Here's what Jesus is giving us permission to do. To choose to forgive each and every time, but over time, as we continue to choose to forgive, he heals our heart of the hurt. Isn't that a hope? Have you ever been hurt? Has the hurt ever been so deep in your heart that you didn't think you'd be able to go on? And yet, as you continue to give it to Christ over and over vertically, I give it to you, Lord. I give that hurt to you, Lord, over time he heals and does a restoring work, that even the sins against me don't determine how God sees me. He actually uses it to make me stronger in Christ. Amen. Say no to bitterness. Victims become victimizers when failing to forgive. We see that in Matthew 28 when the first servant throws the other servant in jail. Stay out of the courtroom. I'm pleading with you on this. This game of the courtroom that we do when we drag somebody into this proverbial courtroom, we were victimized by them, then we become victimizers when we drag them in. It's not okay to sin against somebody just because they sinned against you. Don't take them into the courtroom. Say no to bitterness. And then the opportunity to grow in the depths, the riches, and the knowledge of Christ is immense if the hurt is so significant that you remember it every day for the first three months, but every time you remember that pain, you offer it to Christ over and over, how much deeper in love are you gonna be with Jesus at the end of that three months? You see that? Like, here's the thing. There's this misnomer that we mature beyond the gospel. You don't. You don't mature beyond the gospel. Like, we mature in the gospel. And so that when a hurt comes my way, if I choose to stew on it, if I choose to stay in that courtroom, I don't grow in Christ. I grow in me. That's pride. Choose not to dwell in the bitterness. Choose to give the offense to the Lord vertically, and grow in the riches and the knowledge and the mercy of Christ through the gospel. Another thing this is important right here. forgiveness isn't forgetting. You ever heard the pithy, the pithy little one-liner, "Forgive and forget? Oh, how trite that is. Because we have a God who's omniscient and omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere. He's in the future. He's in the past. He's right now. He knows everything. That sin you did last night, you think nobody saw? He saw it. He is everywhere. And yet God, in his mercy, chooses to throw our sin as far as the east is from the west? Does that mean he forgets our sin? Nope. He chooses not to hold our sin against us. What that means is that God, he, through Christ, rids us of the debt that was set on us. We are given pardon and grace, and he chooses not to see us through those lenses of our debt and our sin. We're forgiven. He doesn't hold, us against, hold it against us. You know, and, I, and I've had glimpses of this in my life, when, when the Lord's worked forgiveness in my heart towards somebody who sinned against me and I've been able to approach them purely and freely and not hold it against them that they hurt me all those years ago or whenever or whatever they did. But I'm gonna be honest, it's hard for me to forget. Thankfully, the scripture don't call us to forget. That forgiveness, as we continue to offer our hearts up vertically, when when the offense is remembered and we give that to the Lord, the gospel washes over us once again. It's the same way when that pain comes and we begin to question, because this is what I get from people that I've pastored. They're like, well, I remembered it. Does that mean I haven't forgiven them? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Like when you remember the pain, where do you go with it? Because if in that remembered pain, you take them to court, and that's the pattern of your life, I would say you haven't forgiven them. But if you continue to offer them up to the Lord, but the pain's still there, that's okay. Keep offering it to the Lord. When we stand in the center of our own universe with nothing more important to us than ourselves, we find nothing more offensive than sins against us. That in a place of pride, which is not childlike humility, humility. In a place of pride, the greatest offense is sins against us. So let me use an example to illustrate how the Lord continues to teach me about this. I've got four kiddos, two boys, two girls. They're all under the age of 10. My wife's awesome. She crushes it. As a father, I am charged by God to minister to them, to discipline them, to shepherd their hearts. And when I understand their sin before a holy God, can I just tell you it challenges my discipline? Can I tell you how little I actually discipline out of this heart? Usually what happens is, things are going crazy at the house and I'm just trying to settle everybody down. You throw out the one warning, it's like, it amps it up even more. How does that happen? I just go through the warning out and you threw it up another decibel and you press in a bit more. And at some point in a horizontal understanding, in my own flesh, I see their sin as an offense on daddy rather than how God sees that as their little souls need reconciling with Jesus. That's a sin against God first and foremost. If I discipline as if it's a personal sin, I'm disciplining with the wrong understanding. And so the call is to understand that we've been pardoned vertically, which frees us up to see people horizontally, even if they sin against us, as the greater sin that they're in is with the Lord. We can leave them to the Lord. We pray for them, we plead with them, we continue to offer the hurt to the Lord, but we can leave them with the Lord. That forgiveness requires humility to become childlike. Forgiveness requires sacrifice. This one's a hard one. It requires sacrifice on our part and it requires sacrifice on God's part. Let me tell you what I mean. The sacrifice on my part is to relinquish justice and vengeance. Some of my favorite counseling stories and stories in in, in ministry are when God's working in the heart of a person who has been unbelievably affected by the sins of somebody else and through that healing and through that softening of their heart, they're able to have begin to have compassion for the very person that did evil against them. Those are some of my favorite victories when I see the Lord do that. That this desire for justice, it's very real and it's very intoxicating. If you've ever told somebody off with your, like verbally just assaulted them after they've done something to you, feels pretty good, doesn't it? You ever done that? No, don't don't, don't leave me alone up here. Have you ever just given into your flesh and and just let someone have it, tore a strip out of them and just took justice into your own hands? There's an intoxication. Can I just tell you it's poison for the heart though? Um, One of the theologians I read in preparation for this week described it this way. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. It only poisons you. It only poisons you. So the The sacrifice on our part is self prescribed vengeance and justice. And on God's part, you know what He sacrificed? His son. God sacrificed His son so that we could have forgiveness through Him. We sacrifice the need for judgment and vengeance. He sacrifices His son. It sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Why would we go back into the courtroom? remember this, our constant sin struggles that are covered by his grace. We forget that there isn't a day that goes by that we don't need to be forgiven. We forget that we have been loved with a love that we could never earn, achieve, or deserve. We forget that we will never graduate from our need for grace. We forget that God never mocks our weakness He never finds joy in throwing our failures in our face. He never threatens to turn his back on us and he never makes us buy back favor with him. Forgiveness remembers the gospel. That when you feel the pain of hurt, the agony from having been sinned against, the agony from abuse, remember the gospel. When you feel the pain of the memories from those things you've endured and wonder if you haven't forgiven them, remember the gospel. Because in remembering the gospel... You'll see your sin before a holy God. You'll see his grace cover that even though you didn't deserve it. And you'll see the unmerited favor that we are given as we're brought into the family of God. It's hard to stay in a place of unforgiveness in that reality. Choose to forgive. Let the process of forgiveness take over in your heart. I'll close with this story. Um, Several years ago, there was some things that happened to me, some brothers that sinned against me. Um, I'm not gonna go into the details, I don't need to. They sinned against me in some very grievous ways, so much so it changed the whole trajectory of my life. Um, Not like a day or two, like the trajectory of my life. Um, And and those first few days, really months after that all happened, uh, I was unbelievably raw. I mean, I I, I could see the injustice that had happened to me, but I I could also feel this desire in me to just crucify these brothers to the wall. And and by God's grace, those first several months in that process of rawness and hurt, it's like the Lord stapled my mouth shut. And, and, And it's good because there were mornings I used to wake up during that period, and I would wake up and think, I should be so angry about this. I should, I should nail these dudes to the wall. And the Lord just, he was so gracious. It was him, it wasn't me. He kept me peaceable. He shut my mouth. And slowly but surely, he began to work the truths of the gospel into my heart. Truths that I knew, truths that I've preached, truths that I've counseled. He began to work those things into my heart and soften my heart in light of those things that happened against me. And I remember um, there was, this was about a year ago, um, we, obviously we've been here, we're going on our third year right now, um, me and my wife, we were packing to go back to the States. We were, once a year, we tried to get back to the States and see family and friends down in Texas and New Mexico and Louisiana, where, where our family are, and we were, I was in the, I was in the um, upstairs in our room, and I was packing the suitcase, and she was downstairs packing the kid's suitcase, and... And, and I was, as I was packing, I, I realized, I was thinking about our trip, I was so excited because it was the dead of winter in February. And I don't know if you've noticed, it's pretty bad here in February. And I was super excited, going to see lovely people that are precious to us and dear to us. And, and then I, I started to think about details of the trip. And again, super excited. And then I began to think about the back end of the trip where I was gonna run into some of the very men that had sent against me. And I knew I was going to, because I was gonna see him at a conference I was gonna attend. And all of a sudden, My adrenaline shot up. And in my mind and in my heart, I began to give it to these dudes. Now keep in mind, they're not in the room. In my mind and in my heart, I took them to court and I was going off on them. I was telling them all the things I'd always wanted to tell them. And I don't know how long this went on. I don't know if it's 20 minutes or 30 minutes, but I was just letting them have it in my mind and in my heart. And God's spirit halted that, and God spoke to me, "You still haven't fully forgiven these men." And I hit my knees in my closet, and I said, "Lord, I give it to you. Can I tell you how many times I did that in two and a half years? I lost count, lost count. I had to give them to the Lord over and over again, Lord." Do a work in my heart because this hurts still. This changed my life forever. How can I let them go? And the Lord said, Give them back, give them to me, give them to me, give them to me. me." And over the years, over the years, by God's grace, my heart's at peace. So much so that He kept me in a place of vertical forgiveness that when those men came to a place where they realized their sins against me and sought me out to ask for my forgiveness, I was able to receive them. Do you see that? That as my heart's been forgiven by the Lord, it's able to be peaceable with those who have sinned against me. What would have happened if I had remained in a place of bitterness? What would have happened if they had approached me? I would have unloaded both barrels. That's What? I would have spoken my mind to them. I would have spoken wrath. I would have spoken curses. But by God's grace, through the vertical forgiveness he's offered me and the, the, the daily choices to forgive as his spirit prompted and the, the overtime healing and forgiveness that he granted me on my heart, we were able to reconcile. Now, I'm not gonna say the relationship's easy, but we're at peace. So last week, when I closed, I gave you some things to think about. I'm gonna do that again this week. I want, us to, I want us to really wrestle with some things. So everybody bow your head and close your eyes. I'm gonna give you some things to consider. And I really, I really want us to slowly walk through this. Just right now in your own heart, ask the Lord to speak specifically. So Lord, speak specifically. Where might you be like the first servant, unappreciative of the great grace afforded to you? Where have you made the gospel something that you pick and choose when you'll live by? Where have you cheapened God's grace? Where have you made the gospel a, a simple remedy that your heart's not fully submitted to? Think of those things in your life. Think of those relationships. Think of those hurts. Where have you, like the first servant, through self-prescribed vengeance, chosen not to forgive? Someone in need of mercy, the same mercy you and I are in need of. Yes, the sins that they've done against you hurt, and the remnants of that is very real. Where have you not forgiven? Who, who are they? Who are the people? Right now, right now in your heart, entrust them to the Lord, vertically. You have the judicial forgiveness through Christ with God. In your heart, by name, offer them to the Lord. Once again, maybe. Maybe you've never done it. Maybe this is the first time you're asking the Lord to take that from you. Maybe you've done it a thousand times. It doesn't matter. Once again, Jesus, we need you. Christ, I give them to you. I give the hurt to you. I give the offense to you. Now seek forgiveness from the Lord where we have taken people into the courtroom. That is a prideful position that seeks justice when clearly in scriptural, Jesus said it, vengeance is the Lord's. Forgive us of our pride, Lord, in this area where we don't trust in your good gospel and we take matters into our own hands. Seek to be childlike and humble. Father, we confess right now that we need your help in these areas. There are sins that come against us. There are hurts that have come our way, a room like this full of people. No doubt that there are immeasurable amounts of hurt and brokenness caused at the hands and the actions of others. But we thank you, Lord, that none of those things trump your plans for our lives through Christ Jesus. We will never forgive a debt greater than the debt we've been forgiven by you, O God. There is no debt that we could forgive against us that is greater than what you've done for us. Father, your grace is greater, greater than any difficulty we will ever face, greater than any hurt that we will ever face. Through Christ, we can become powerful ministers of grace. So Lord, as 2 Corinthians 5 talks about, just ministers of reconciliation, Lord, reconcile our hearts to you. If there's relationships in this room that need to be reconciled, as you humble hearts, let it be, God. We wanna be used by you in a dark world as agents of grace, ministers of reconciliation because of the great reconciling work you've done in our hearts with you, God. So Lord, help us here.